going to tell you a story. I think it's a fictional story, but it's a good story nonetheless. There was a father who had a family of sons who fought all the time. If you have sons, you know that that's not uncommon. He called the boys together one day, and he picked out the strongest boy among them and handed him a stick. He said, break it. The son broke it easily. The man handed him two sticks. He broke them. Three, and then four. Each time it became harder. Eventually, he had to give up when his father handed him six sticks. Then the old man said, Unity is strength. A house divided cannot stand. He told the boys that you can be overcome one by one, but... If you all stand together, your united strength will overcome and put fear into your enemies. That's, that's really what the Apostle Paul prays for in Colossians chapter 1 as he's dealing with false teachers trying to infiltrate the church. And not only false teachers, but the spirit of the world, the zeitgeist, the, the spirit of the age. We, we need to understand that unity is necessary. Paul through the Spirit's direction, tells us that unity is necessary because we have enemies. Unity in the truth, but unity that changes us because of the truth. Unity in Christ's body is necessary for our spiritual growth, but also for our protection. I believe that's why Paul is driven to pray what he prays here in Colossians 1, 9-12. Paul, Paul wants the Colossians to understand that their knowledge of the gospel should lead to the practical application of the gospel. They should live out the truths that they hold dear, that, that brought them into the kingdom. Paul knows that understanding these truths without applying these truths will oftentimes lead to disunity in the body, factions, divisions in the body, and then the disintegration of the body. And that's what the false teachers were counting on in Colossae. They were trying to divide and conquer. And we may not have false teachers coming into our church, and that's something we can praise God for, but we still have the flesh that tries to come in to our church. And it still tries to break people up into factions and dissolve unity and disintegrate this body. So we must be aware of that. We must also be aware that we can't just be a theologically sound church without living out that theology practically. I praise God that you are lovers of truth, but we need to be living out the truths that we love. So let's do that by looking at the truth and seeing how the Spirit of God shows us how to apply the things that we love in our lives. By beginning in Colossians 1, 9 to 12, that's not really going to be the, the main gist of my sermon. It will come out of Colossians 3, but... It springs out of Colossians 1 and the petition that we see here in verse 9. This is the Apostle Paul's prayer. What's interesting is in verse 3, he actually says that he always thanks God for this church, which is a great testimony when it comes to sovereign grace. I always thank God for you when I pray for you because you have the same hope, you have the same gospel, you have the same fruit that Paul sees at this church in Colossae, but at the same time you have the same frailties and you need prayer and protection. And so he says this in verse 9, And so, from the day we heard of their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you 
asking that you may be filled. It's a very important word, filled. Fully controlled is what it means. He hasn't stopped praying that you would be fully controlled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk or live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has just reminded them of this theological truth that that God is the one who has rescued them. God has brought them the gospel. God has united them together by His Son's work, transferring them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But he's praying for something practical here in light of those truths. So what is the practical application of this theological petition? I think the application would be that we would live out these truths practically. He's praying for a spirit-controlled life in the saints at Colossae, where they're fully controlled by the truth. In other words, fully compelled to live this thing out. It's exciting to think about the doctrines of grace, is it not? God's electing grace, sovereign grace. But if we don't share that with people, if we don't live in light of that in the body, it's just head knowledge and it will puff us up and make us proud. But in light of His sovereignty in uniting us through Christ, we should be compelled by His Spirit to rejoice together in this race, side by side with the saints that are here with you. We need to be living a Spirit-controlled life, Spirit-dominated life, dominated by the truth that we know, that we love, that we adhere to. That's what it means to have a Spirit-controlled life. A Spirit-controlled life is a life that is controlled by the Spirit and magnifies Christ's love. Or you could say, controlled by the Spirit and clothed in Christ's love. That's Paul's constant prayer here. That's what he's praying all the time for the saints. Fill them with the knowledge and the wisdom of Christ and change them as a result. Let them reflect that to the world. His prayer reveals to us that the knowledge of God's will and God's wisdom and God's word should produce. He desires it to produce in their lives something practical and personal applied in their church family that they're a part of. He gives us an illustration of what that kind of spirit-controlled life should look like and would look like if we love these truths and live them out daily in Colossians chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there with me. In Colossians 3, 1 to 14, Paul illustrates for us what it looks like to be a a church that is controlled by the Spirit and clothed by Christ's love. This is our challenge today as we read this text. Let me just put it this way. This is my challenge for me as I read this text. Okay? Um, This has been what the Holy Spirit has been using to transform me and lead me to repentance personally. And I I pray that, that you can follow that example as you see me humbly 
seeking God's direction and pursuing His will. Let me read the text. Basically, Paul is, is, is kind of like bringing the thought from the petition about how we were delivered from darkness into light and through Christ's sacrifice all the way over here to chapter 3, verse 1. He says, if, if then... If then you've been delivered from darkness into the kingdom of Christ, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Well, he tells us why in verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked or lived when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off, put off the old self with its practices. And put on, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It means he dominates everything. So he says, based on that, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, God's holy ones, God's beloved ones, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Basically, Paul says, you're being renewed by this knowledge, the knowledge that I I mentioned in chapter 1. You're being renewed to be conformed to the image of Christ. So put on Christ's attributes. Put on what would reflect Christ. Be clothed in His love. Be controlled by His Spirit. Controlled by the Spirit simply means having the truth in our hearts and that dominates our thoughts, our thinking, and that thinking is moving us into action. That's what He's praying for. That's what He's praying for in chapter 1. That's what He's commanding for here in chapter 2. Three, God wants us to display practically what He has done to us inwardly because He gets glory. He is praised because of that. If God's amazing love, according to Romans, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, then that love should transform us here on earth. It should transform our relationships in the church. Our care for one another should be transformed. Our love for each other should reveal the love of Christ that has conformed us to His image and that is continuing to conform us to His image. That's that's my personal desire for myself. 
I fall short of that. But Christ has accomplished what I need most. And I know that by His Spirit, through His Word, I have access to His love. And His love will compel me to put this into application. I may fall short, but the wanting is there. And the pursuit is there because the Spirit is compelling me. It's it's my personal desire to pursue this. And it's my pastoral conviction to help you pursue this as well. That was Paul's personal desire here and his pastoral conviction. That's what compelled him to write this letter to the Colossians, to help them put their doctrine into application. There's nothing worse than a bunch of Reformed, theologically accurate Christians who do not put it into application. They become cold and indifferent, divisive and argumentative. They don't seek to love the one who loved them so much. They seek to rejoice in their knowledge. Now listen, I want us to grow in knowledge and wisdom and doctrine, but I want it to transform us by submitting to God's Word and His desire. I know it will do that. Paul makes it really clear that that's his desire. And what I love about this this letter, and especially this command, it's a pretty heavy command, right? I mean, put on these things, put off these things, you know, put away these robes of filthiness and put on robes of righteousness. It's a, it's a heavy command. But before he commands them, throughout the letter, he says, I see your love, I see your growth, I see the good things that God's doing in your life. It's evident that you're a part of his body. He edifies before he commands. I think that's very important this morning that I remind you that that I see your growth. I see your struggles. I see your pursuits. But I see your hunger for the truth. And it's evident in your life. But I want it to excel still more because I want that to excel still more in my life as well. So that we can serve one another and glorify God together. So Paul encourages them. And I think he encourages us that since we have been transformed into Christ's, or transferred rather, into Christ's kingdom, we should now live like kingdom citizens, spirit controlled citizens. We're controlled by the spirit. We're, we're clothed in the love of Christ. I mean, the love of Christ compels us. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. Compels him to be a minister. It compelled him to suffer all things for the sake of the elect. Now, in in Colossians 3, 12, Paul gives us this theological motivation in verse 12, the first half of verse 12. He gives us a theological motivating pep talk, if you will, so that we could push ourselves into this personal application. He says, if you want to know why you need to put these things off, check this out. Put them on because of this. You are God's chosen ones. You're holy. You've been declared righteous. You're loved by God. He gives us a theological reason for our personal application here. We need to think about this. He, he called us out of darkness by His love so that we could become citizens that reflect His glory. So we want to reveal that glory. We want to rejoice in that glory. We want to grow together in that truth. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to compel them to put off the flesh and put on life, the life you've been given to the Spirit. And so he does that in a very, I think, um, creative way. You notice that he uses the term put off and put on. 
We all put things off and put things on every day, don't we? In the morning, what do you do? You put on, hopefully, clean clothes. Right? And in the evening, you do what? You put off dirty clothes. Right? I mean, this is something that he says, look, it's just like that. You, you, you live this life of death and corruption and decay. Well, put that away. You, you don't live there anymore. That's the filth that you lived in. Put it off. It's been put off by Christ. He, he took the penalty for it on the cross. So live in the promise. Put on as those who are called, those who are holy, those who are beloved by God. Put these things on. So, so Paul does this. He gives us a command to put on six layers of spiritual clothing in this text. Six layers of spiritual clothing that will display Christ's love practically and evidentially. He calls us to put on these because sometimes we still like to put on our old dirty clothes. Sometimes we still look like we're dressed in the flesh. At times... We may have hearts that are prone toward disunity or impatience toward others in the body. Or hearts that are prone toward selfishness rather than selflessness. Sometimes there's a lack of communication in our church family and we need to put that away and put on unity. The church always needs to be reminded of this. Every church, not just our church. We need to be, we need to be reminded of who we are called to reflect. So that's what Paul does here. He calls for us to dress like Christ. Put on Jesus' compassion. Put on Christ's kindness. Put on his patience and humility and love. And acknowledge when you don't. Repent of that. And look to Christ who, who called you to this and will equip you to do it. Again, we don't want to be we don't want to be robed theologically, but naked practically. Okay? We want to be robed theologically and moved, dressed, if you will, like Christ practically. So let's look at the, the first layer of clothing that Paul calls for us to put on. It's found in 12a. We're told to put on layer number one, a heart of compassion. It's a Christ-like compassion. And Christ-like compassion is basically this. It's inward pity that moves us into action outwardly. All right? Inward pity that moves us into action outwardly. It's this layer of, of spiritual clothing, if you will, that will warm, keep our hearts warm. All right? It, it keeps us insulated in the right sense. It keeps our hearts from growing cold. It warms our hearts and it moves us close to those around us who are hurting and in need of grace. Christ's heart was covered with this. His heart was covered with the greatest of all compassions. Look with me in Luke 7. You can see an illustration of this. Luke 7, 11. In 7, 11 here through 15, we can see what compassion looked like when it was clothed in Christ, right? When it, when it came through Him. This is what, what inward pity drove him to do. It sought, he sought out the needs around him. He looked for those who needed him, and he moved toward them without even being asked by them for help. A compassionate heart, one that's clothed with Christ's compassion, doesn't have to wait for a special need to arise. It's sensitive to its situation. In other words, we have situational awareness 
We're thinking about those around us. We're looking at their needs above our own. Look what Jesus did here in this text. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and the great crowd with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now understand this. A widowed woman in this culture, whose son, happened to be a man, it says at this point, died, means that she was destitute. She had no one to care for her. No family to care for her. There was no welfare system. There was no one to to provide for this woman's needs. So then it says this in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus saw the need in that woman's life and he was moved to act on her behalf. That should be what marks those in the body of Christ. That should be a layer that should keep us motivated to move out when we see needs around us. We should always be willing to help those who are brokenhearted over their needs. We should be seeking them out. We should be looking for those things. If your heart is clothed with compassion, that's what you're going to do. So here's the question. How, how are we putting Christ's compassion into application? How are we doing that? Think about that this morning. I'm going to ask you that question over and over again. And we're each going to have to answer it, I think, individually. But you know, one of the ways we can answer that question, how are we putting Christ's compassion into action, is, is you know, asking ourselves, are we, are we aware of the needs of others in our church family? I mean, besides hearing a prayer request, do you really know what's going on in their lives? Are you seeking each other out personally, practically, asking, pursuing? Jesus wasn't asked for help. He sought out the helpless. That's that's the layer of compassion that we need to be dressed with. Colossians 3.12. We see the next layer. We're told to put on layer 2. Layer 2, which he simply calls kindness. I would call it Christ-like kindness. That's the layer of spiritual clothing that, that doesn't cover necessarily just our hearts. It covers our arms and our feet and prepares us for action. It's sort of like putting on a coat in the wintertime. It makes it where you can go out and do what you need to do. Kindness should cover our feet and move us to action. That's what we see happening in James 2. It's what we're commanded to do in James 2 as a result of, again, the truth bearing witness in our life. In James 2.14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, well, this sounds very pious, doesn't it? Go in peace, be warmed and filled. That's my prayer request for you, brother. (laughs) They do that without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Kindness isn't just kind thoughts. I hope we have kind thoughts. But I, I hope that when you see the need, that your heart's broken over, that you're moved into action. That you're going to step out of your comfort zone to pursue what these people around you may need. I love it that you pray for me and pray for others, but sometimes people just simply need a hand. God can give a hand spiritually. We know that. But he's linked us arm in arm together physically so that we can help each other practically too. So how are we doing that? How are we, how are we putting on this layer of kindness, Christ-like kindness? I wouldn't say just practically, but personally. I think one way we can do it is, again, be aware of the needs around you and then put yourself in a position to help them resolve that need, to help them fix that problem. The implication in all these layers would be that they're closely connected together. Okay? They're not like, you know, one person has kindness, one person has this. one. No, he's talking about, as a Christian, put these things on within the body because we all need each other reaching out, extending, living close side by side together for the glory of God's name, as a testimony to the truth, and for the good of the lost as well around us who sees us living out our faith practically. We're not hypoc- uh, full of hypocrisy. There are a lot of hypocrites. The church is always being blamed to be being hypocritical. And sometimes it's true. But sometimes... By God's grace, we see churches put these things on and God is glorified, the saints are edified, and the lost are evangelized. Let's look at the next layer, layer 3 in Colossians 3:12c, the next word. Here we're told to put on layer 3, which is Christ-like humility. This layer of spiritual clothing protects not just the heart, not just the hands, but it protects the mind. Humility has to do with the way you perceive yourself. Maybe you think about yourself too much, and that's a sign that you aren't humble. I would say that that's probably the case with all of us at times. Humility will protect all that you do because it begins to reshape your mind about who you are and how you're brought into the kingdom. When you can admit that you need God's compassion and you need God's kindness, then that will lead to you actually being humble when it comes to serving others. Humility acknowledges that we need God. We need God's grace, His favor, and we need our fellow believers. We see, again, an illustration of what it looks like to, to express humility in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. In other words, it's not about your individualistic identity. 
You can't make it on your own, is what he's saying. You're a part of a body. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would make it, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, this is the great part. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. That means this local church. Yeah, we can say the universal church, but he's talking about their particular local church. That's what he's talking about here. You're here because God arranged it. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it were, there are many parts, yet one body. I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the hand, head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem, notice this, that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which, is, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that it lacked, that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. That's the key here. That's the key here. If, if we understand this, I need you. I need God's grace that comes through you. It's going to cultivate humility in the body. I can't make it as a Christian apart from Christ's gift of the church. That's his ordained purpose for the church. It's to edify and protect and equip the saints. And, and we need each other. That's what he's simply saying here. And listen, we, we, we live in a culture that says, I am an American I need no one. But in reality, that's not even true of America, is it? We borrow and beg from everybody else. Here we are, though, as Christians, turning the world upside down and saying, you know, I have Christ and I need His body. I am needy. I'm humbled by His grace. And I'm in need of His gifts. So how do we how do we do this? How do we how do we express humility corporately? I think one of the ways we express humility corporately is we don't come to the Sunday gatherings or Wednesday gatherings thinking this is all about me being edified. We come here saying, how can I edify others because I need their edification. I need their help in this life. I think that's one way we can do that. Now let's look at layer 4. There, toward the end of Colossians 3.12, there we're told to put on layer 4. It's a Christ-like meekness or gentleness. Okay? Gentleness is the ability to control one's personal feelings in order to serve others. It's a real simple way maybe to remember it. It's the ability to control your personal feelings so that you can serve others above yourself. 
That's what Christ did on our behalf. Philippians 2, right? Philippians 2, 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mentality, this thought, this thinking, this, this, this drive biblically among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. We are to put on Christ's gentleness by seeking the good of others above ourselves. There are times when you, you, you feel like you deserve something. You, you have worked hard for something. And, and doggone it, I'm not going to give up my free time for someone else. But somebody in the church says, I need help. And there's a personal feeling you have that needs to be set aside. Because of the need of the brother or sister in Christ. And, and you know, there, there, there's a point that we battle with that in the flesh. And it's not really, you know, my, my, I don't have a, a warm, fuzzy feeling about serving my brother for a moment. Um, but in the moment that God drives you biblically back to what he's done for you, and you, you reach out to your brother and you serve him, the feeling will follow the obedience. The feeling will follow the obedience. I, I, was, I was taken back by that this, this week. I, I, I had neglected to do something for a long time for someone who used to attend this church. And, and God compelled me to set aside my personal feelings and express gentleness and meekness toward this person. And it was only by the Spirit of God compelling me because I'm preaching this text. That's what he used. He used this text to convict me, all right? That's where it starts in my heart. When I'm trying to prepare a sermon, he, he always gets me first, okay? Um, and my personal feelings weren't there along with this call to be obedient. But in the act of obedience, I was set free from my personal feelings. And I had freedom to be obedient to Christ and hopefully provide for my brother in Christ. We want to do that. We want to set aside our agenda, set aside our desires at times to serve the needs of those in our church with gentleness, with meekness. Colossians 3, 12 on into 13 tells us that we are to put on layer 5. It's a Christ-like patience, or it's called bearing with one another. It doesn't mean putting up with one another. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean like you know, tolerating, you know, put on toleration, you know, that person. And listen, there are people in our church body that you may not necessarily love to hang out with. That's okay. All right. And he's not saying, though, just tolerate them. He's saying, bear with them, though they may be different than you, though they may like things different than you. Maybe their sense of humor is different than yours. Listen to them carefully. Bear with them. Be patient because there's something within them that God has given you as a gift in this body. And you need to pay attention because you're going to learn something from them. We need this layer to cover up every inch of us, spiritually speaking. We need this because we're tempted to, rather than bear with them, we're tempted to seek self-satisfaction. 
Sometimes when they do things we don't like and we feel wronged by them, either intentionally or accidentally, we, we, we don't want to bear with them. What good are they? How can they help me? That's self-satisfaction. But in reality, even in our disagreements and even in our disunity at times, if we're united in Christ's love, God will use that to sanctify us and bring us back to what binds us together, which is Christ's love. Patience and bearing with one another is, is the ability to bear injustices and bad treatment without seeking personal revenge. Patience seeks not revenge, but reconciliation. Patience seeks peace. That's what Romans 14 tells us. That's the kind of patience that we see expressed in Christ. He was patient. Aren't you glad He was patient with you and me? That He bore with us? Now, He didn't tolerate us. He loved us. It was a special kind of love called agape, which we'll get to. But He, he, he didn't just tolerate. He sacrificed. Though we weren't lovely. He, he didn't show us patience and love because of how lovely we were, because he had fuzzy feelings about us because we were so lovely or obedient or kind or gracious. He expressed perfect patience by bearing our burdens on the cross willingly, sacrificially, and he bore them totally. And that's how we are to bear with one another as Christians We are to bear with one another sacrificially and totally. Sometimes it takes time to grow together in Christ. Sometimes it takes effort to grow together in Christ. But that is God's will for us. He wants us to be clothed with these things. For that to happen, He has to cinch it all together with one last thing. That's found in verse 14. In in verse 14, we see the last layer. Paul tells us, above all these other things, above all these other layers, we must put this one layer on. And that layer is love. It's Christ-like love. It's agape. The command to love here is based on what Christ did for us not how we feel emotionally about others. We love others because Christ loved us and gave his life up for us, and he did so for our brothers and sisters also. Forgiveness of others isn't based on our emotional feelings. It's based on a choice driven by God's grace and forgiveness of us. This agape love, this godlike love, is based on the need that our brother and sister has, not on what they can do for us or what they did do against us. It's based on what they need from us. They need patient love. They need kind love. They need meek love. They need, they need humble love. They need compassionate love. The kind of love that Christ gives to us. It's the kind of love that moves us to act on their behalf, whether we feel like it or not. It's the kind of love that pursues us by God's grace through Christ. We need to be loved like this. And I'm glad we're loved like this by Jesus. But that love should pour through us onto others. And Paul says that it's that kind of love that binds all the spiritual 
layers of clothing together. Verse 14b says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The term bind here refers to how how the ligaments work in our human body. That's where the word is basically, uh, it's where we get our English word here for ligaments comes from this term. The ligaments tie the body together so that it can work in unison. And he says, agape love is the ligament that binds us together as Christians. It, It is what cinches us together as one. It's the, it's the way that we function in unison here. The idea was of a, of a strap that would be cinched around something and tightened up, holding it all together like a girdle. Making it one. It moves as one thing. This bond causes us to seek the good of others and glorify Christ who unites us together in His love. And I don't think that as a church we can fully say that we are united or bonded as a body or dressed like Christ until we put these things into application in our lives. So my question as I conclude is this. Are we dressed for fellowship today? How did you come dressed for worship today? We need to understand desperately how how much we need to be dressed biblically, and lovingly and practically in this church body. We desperately need to understand this because if we don't understand this, there will be division, there will be discouragement, and our church will eventually dissolve. Satan longs for this. The flesh is prone toward this. And the world rejoices over this. But God that God has given us a remedy for this. He has given us the grace and the means of grace to nourish one another and protect us from dissolving. He has surrounded us with saints. He has filled us with His Spirit. He has directed us with His Word. He has poured out the love of Christ in us richly. Just as an expression of that, just look around you. Think about the people around you. Those, those people around you love you like no one else in the world loves you. And those people need you. These people in this church, you as Sovereign Grace Saints, you, you love one another like, like no one else in the world, don't you? You're, you are united together. Think about this. You're united together for eternity. And, and we are called to labor beside each other here temporally, right? The people around you, the saints at this church, they will weep with you when you weep. They will rejoice with you when you rejoice. They they will petition God when you have no more voice. They will edify you when you have no more strength. I want you to understand something this morning. You are all gifts from God placed individually in this church body to display His love and His glory. That's who you are, Sovereign Grace. Pastorally, I I want us to ponder that. Ponder the weightiness of this holy assembly, this holy convocation. You are, I I, I hope you know, maybe you do, and I just want to remind you of this, you, you are a theologically rare gift from God. And you are a personally precious gift from God. We need each other here. 
Listen, we need we need personal interaction. More of it. We need loving conversations. More of it. We need daily intercession. We need words of encouragement. And, and listen, I, I know that, that that sounds like a lot. <laughs> but we live in a time period when, when that kind of communication and concern for each other is really accessible. It's really rather easy. We need to be able to use the gifts and the time and the abilities that we have to build up this body and display God's glory. I believe that's what God wants our love to do. He wants it to be put on display so that the world would see the work of Christ through His church. Let me end by simply doing this, by giving you, I think, some practical ways to put on these spiritual clothes this morning, okay? I'm going to give you about four things, five things, that I think that, though they may sound very mundane, very simple, I think they will do something in our church family that is going to be exponential. It's going to grow spiritually because we're putting on the love of Christ when we do this. If, if Christ's love is drawing us to do this, I know that God's grace will bless it. So I want you to prayerfully do this. Seek to do this. Take some time out of your day to do these things. Send a simple text message to one another. Reminding one another of God's grace. Pointing them to God's Word. Ask them how you can pray for them. We live in a time period that's so rare. You can communicate with each other anywhere at any time through your phone that you have strapped to your hip all the time. Why don't we use this? How many times have you been someplace having a very, very tough spiritual battle waging in your heart and all of a sudden somebody sends you a text at the right moment? Or how you long to hear a word of encouragement from another saint? Secondly, I think you can take some time out and prayerfully seek to simply call on the phone. It doesn't just text message. You can actually talk. Um, Call each other weekly. It's a small church family. You know, I mean, we we can do this. And I'll tell you this, your phone calls to me go a long ways to encourage me and my family. So calling to check on each other weekly is important. Thirdly, you can send emails. You can send emails that acknowledge the fact that you're thinking about that individual saint. And that maybe you want to ask them something personal that, that only they can answer through an email that would write to you. Let them know in that email that here's a verse that's encouraging. Here's a quote that's encouraging. Here's a, you know, an opportunity to share with me the needs you have in your family. And as a parent, let me tell you this. If you, if you wrote me or called me and asked how you could pray for my children... That would be an immense blessing. I mean, we should be praying for the salvation of our children. And to know that other saints are doing that, it's encouraging. Here's a fourth one. Call, not just to talk, but call to invite. Call someone within our church family. Ask them over for a hamburger. Ask them out for coffee. Ask them if they want to go to the park and just hang out. But here's the thing, even if it's not your nature to do any of this thing, these things, I have good news, right? You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have a new nature. And you're, you're driven by His Spirit and His love. And I pray that you can put these into application based on that. I think these kinds of gestures will help to edify our church family. And 
I think it will allow us to put Christ's love on display practically and evangelistically. Let me just say this. I think that the church exists to glorify God, edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. And if we're going to evangelize the lost, we have to be in unity as a church. Because when they come in here and they see factions and divisions and separations or even just a lack of unity and love, they don't want to be a part of it. We need to go after them by first and foremost going after each other. And I believe you do that. This is not like a you shouldn't, you know, uh, continue on the path that you're on. I think that the path you're on is probably good, but you need to excel. You need to, to grow still more. Um, we need to be stretched. We need to be, you know, exercising these things more practically in our lives. And I pray that God will help us to do that as we, we seek to honor Him and, and encourage one another in Jesus' name. All right? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this time. This time together to open Your Word and to invest in one another's lives. I pray that we would see this gathering as not just a formal event, but a daily and a weekly necessity. I pray that we would rely on your grace above all things, but also trust that you have given us a church family to help us and to give us help through this church. You've given us truth that unites us. We just pray that that truth would, would transform the way we live our lives Lord, I know that I need you to do this in my life. I know that the church as a whole wants this to be the testimony of our, our lives corporately. So we submit to you our weakness and our inability and our selfishness and our sinfulness. And we ask you as a church family to, to grant us grace and repentance so that our lives and our family here at church would make much of Jesus. And to Him be the glory in the church, I pray. Amen.